Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 74. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and modern science for the concurrence that we as human beings have a mind, which is our greatest treasure, and importantly, that our minds give us our freedom. In this episode, I am once again going to be talking about the unconscious mind. Now, we've already spent some time on this in previous episodes, particularly in episode 72 on Jung's notion of the collective unconscious. But in this episode, I want to deal with the question of whether the unconscious mind is in fact a reality, something that actually exists, and look to see what evidence supports this notion. I believe that by addressing this question head-on, one can better understand the reality of our minds in general, and in so doing, move one step away from the blind materialism that pervades so much of the thinking of the world today. I plan to go over Freud and Jung's breakthrough theories of the unconscious and then move back in time to Hegel, who in many ways laid down the foundation for the reality of the unconscious mind with his philosophy. But first, I want to go back to my own time, so to speak, and to my own personal history, because I believe it is very relevant to this discussion. I was educated in public schools in America and then went on to a New England university for my undergraduate degree. In high school, math was my best subject. And once in college, I, saw, I decided that my major would be mathematics because I was strongest in, 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 that, in that field. But during my sophomore year, however, I, I became a little bit disillusioned with the advanced mathematic classes that I was taking. I couldn't seem to find how they related to anything outside the actual mathematics class. And I wanted some exposure to, to new areas, to new ideas, etc., I had taken a psychology 101 class freshman year and was now taking an abnormal psychology course during my sophomore year, and I was doing well in both and found them to be fascinating. So I decided to switch my major from math to psychology mid-semester. I had always been interested in the human mind, and although they did not have any psychology classes in my high school, I was intrigued in the subject even as a youngster by the concept of the unconscious mind, or as I called it back then, the subconscious mind. I recognized that it was almost like a second sense where intuition, memories, and our nightly dreams come from. I could even call upon it at times for help, such as telling me to, to remind me to wake up at a specific time the next morning because I had to do something. I used to call it setting my mind. Uh, my mom, I remember my mother would say, do you want me to set the alarm clock early for you, Greg? And I'd go, no, no, I can set my own mind to wake up at that time. And it always worked. It, interesting. So psychology was a natural interest of mine, always. And it seemed to me, once I was in college, to be much more practical and useful than the higher level mathematics I was studying. So I switched majors, and I started taking all the psychology classes required. And I found them to be easy and entertaining and fun. So I, I had a good education in, in psychology in terms of the foundations upon which the discipline was based. But an important point, this was the late 1960s, early 1970s, and there was a heavy behavioristic emphasis to the field of psychology back then. And by that, I mean there was an emphasis totally on what people do and how they behave as opposed to what they think or how they feel. 
And I want to spend some time on this because I think it was a major problem in the field at the time. And this has direct correspondence to the prominent materialistic paradigm that dominates so much today of science and philosophy with analytical philosophy. What is interesting is that when psychology adopts behaviorism, and it's supposed to be about studying the human mind, well, this actually undercuts the very premise of psychology in the first place, which is the study of psyche or mind. When one analyzes behavior only, one is reducing a person, a subject, to an object, to an animal, if you will. And by so doing, it ignores the one thing that makes us unique from the animals. This is a strange paradox that psychology found itself in. It wasn't aware of it at the time, but I, I sensed it a little bit. Now, but even though I sensed that this was a problem, I was still young and I went along with the program. I thought maybe it's just because I'm haven't learned enough yet. And this is, they're saying this is based on all this new research and et cetera. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll stay with it for a while. It was just a study of how people move about. It had nothing to do with uh, what they're thinking. It was only what they were doing. And I was being taught that this is all you need to know. I was taught that mental illness itself was a, was a an illusion, that people only behave badly. And if, if they behave out of line, you lock them up and put them in jail. That's it. End of story. Now, there was a patron saint behind this whole movement. That was named B.F. Skinner. And I want to talk about him for a bit. Skinner is considered the father of behaviorism in psychology. He was a Harvard professor of psychology from 1958 until his retirement in 1974. He did not believe in free will and considered it an illusion. Skinner saw all actions as based on reward and punishment, positive and negative reinforcers, if you will. He emphasized an experimental approach, and this was certainly the emphasis of the psychology department in my school. The central premise was how behavior could be conditioned. This could be done either through associative or operant conditioning. Associative conditioning is best shown by Pavlovian response, where Pavlov would ring a bell before giving his dog's food. And after repeated pairings of the sound and the food, just the sound of the bell would trigger the dog's mouth to water. And operant conditioning is where rewards are given to increase learning. This is how animals are taught to do tricks in the circus. A certain movement is rewarded with a food treat, and then it's repeated and reinforced, repeated and reinforced. And then when that is learned, new movements are added in. And eventually, you get things like bears riding bicycles and things like that. And th this is a, basically all we did with our experiments in, uh, as a psych major back then was we train half-starved rats how to do tricks. Now, the disturbing thing about this behaviorism is that in it, humans are viewed no differently than dancing bears. And I believe that behaviorism is a terrible dehumanizing discipline that gets rid of mind and spirit altogether. And looking back, it's hard to believe that the psychological community bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. And I'm not exaggerating here. A 2002 survey listed Skinner as the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. And just as a reminder, the 20th century also included Freud and Jung. In Skinner's most famous book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, published in 1971, it landed him on the cover of Time magazine. And Time 
if you're old enough, can remember, was a hugely important cultural force during that period. Let me read you some of the praise for Skinner in his book. Quote, Skinner is the most influential of living American psychologists, end quote, says Time, 1971. Quote, Skinner has remained a highly influential figure among U.S. college students for well over a decade, end quote, Newsweek, 1971. And also Newsweek was a highly cultural, significant publication at the time, just like Time. And this quote from Science News in 1971 also speaks to this adoration of Skinner. Let me quote it. Quote, Burris Frederick Skinner is the most influential psychologist alive today, and he is second only to Freud as the most important psychologist of all time. This, at least, is the feeling of 56% of the members of the American Psychological Association who are polled in this question. And it should be reason enough to make Dr. Skinner's new book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, one of the most important happenings in 20th century psychology, end quote. Again, that was published in 1971. Now, you get the point. Skinner and his anti-mind behaviorism was the new paradigm for psychology. And just what was jettisoned with such a theory as this? Well, mind was made to be a fiction. Skinner even calls this autonomous man. Let me read a quote from Skinner on what he means by the term autonomous man. Quote, Autonomous man is a device used to explain what we cannot explain in any other way. He has been constructed from our ignorance, and as our understanding increases, the very stuff of which he is composed vanishes. Science does not dehumanize man, it dehomunculizes him, and it must do so if it is to prevent the abolition of the human species. To man, qua man, we readily say good riddance, only by dispossessing him can we turn to the real causes of human behavior. Only then can we turn from the inferred to the observed, from the miraculous to the natural, from the inaccessible to the manipulable, end quote. That's what B.F. Skinner had to say about human beings. He cannot be more clear. This is not just the death of mind. Mind never existed in the first place for him. Now, it seems very clear in hindsight what's, what Skinner's doing here. He is turning the field of psychology into pure scientific determinism. He's turning it into a hard science, and it can only be concerned itself with what can be measured and observed, pure behavior. And he was pronounced the king of psychology for doing this. And this was the fever that had taken over the psychology department at my university, and I'm sure at colleges all over the world. Now, I have an interesting quote by author Ayn Rand, whom we discussed in the last episode, and she sums up what Skinner is actually saying very well. Let me read a quote of hers referring to Skinner's autonomous man. Quote, Autonomous man is the term used by Mr. Skinner to denote man's consciousness in all those aspects which distinguish it from the sensory level of an animal's consciousness, specifically reason, mind, values, concepts, thought, judgment, volition, purpose, memory, independence, self-esteem. These, he asserts, do not exist. They are an illusion, a myth, a pre-scientific superstition. His term may be taken to include everything we call man's inner world, except that Mr. Skinner would never allow such an expression. <laughs> Whenever he has to refer to man's inner world, he says, inside your skin, end quote. Ayn Rand summarizes the book premise 
with with the following quote that I'm going to read. And she this kind of summarizes the the book to her. Let me begin. Quote. Inside his skin, man is totally determined by his environment and by his genetic endowment, which was determined by his ancestors' environment, end quote. And, and this is what she's saying Skinner asserts, and quote, and therefore is totally malleable, end quote. And she goes on. By, quote, by controlling the environment, behavioral technologists could and should control men inside out. If people were brought to give up individual autonomy and to join Mr. Skinner, proclaiming to man qua man, we readily say good riddance, the behavioral technologist would create a new species in a perfect world. This is the book's thesis, end quote. Now, this was the education I was getting in psychology at my university. And to further drive home this point, let me relate a story about my senior thesis at the university. I wanted to do it on the unconscious mind. I prepared a little brief and presented it to my advisor. And this was a topic that really wasn't being addressed at all. And I, I thought it was important to, to, to deal with it. So I presented it. My advisor said no, that I could not choose this as a subject for my paper. He said there was no evidence that the unconscious mind exists. And further, he said, this brings up the question of whether a third mind is needed to determine what is the conscious mind and what is the unconscious mind. So I kind of just stood there with my mouth open. I didn't really know what to say. I was pretty much in shock. So I ditched that paper and went on to a different subject. But I knew at the time that this left a bad taste in my mouth. I did not I knew I did not want to pursue a master's degree in psychology or a PhD because this was the, the paradigm. I didn't really want to have anything to do with it. I just felt in my gut that it was incorrect. So there you have it. Now, what I want to do here in this episode is something I was not allowed to do in college, and that is to provide a rational basis for the unconscious mind, which is the foundation, the platform for the conscious mind itself. First, some background. Concepts regarding a part of the mind that resembles the unconscious have been around for millennia, including the Hindu Vedas. But the actual term unconscious mind was coined by the 18th century German philosopher Friedrich Schelling, who by chance was Hegel's roommate at the University of Tübingen. However, the concept of the unconscious mind was really brought into general awareness, as we all know, by Sigmund Freud at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th. As a physician, he recognized that some patients were suffering from hysterical illnesses, meaning having physical symptoms which had no underlying physical causes that he could find. This led him to his theory that certain thoughts, memories, and feelings were buried, were being buried in the mind below the conscious level into the unconscious. And these repressed thoughts and feelings were actually causing the symptoms of the disease. They were buried because they were unacceptable to the conscious mind. And this could include socially unacceptable thoughts, anxiety-inducing ideas, traumatic memories, more primitive instincts. They were buried by a process of repression. And these repressed thoughts were often then projected onto others as ways to sort of get, get them out of themselves unconsciously. Or they were projected onto themselves in different ways, which caused the, the hysterical diseases. And... The unconscious thoughts and feelings can become manifest in dreams and in neurotic symptoms and in verbal slips, which are now known as Freudian slips. Freud, in fact, called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. 
And this was a profound discovery that made Freud a household word and gave birth to psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. His hand-picked successor, Carl Jung, took the concept of the unconscious even deeper. For Jung, it did not end with the individual, but actually it went to a new transpersonal level, connecting us all in one collective unconscious. I'm not going to spend any more time on this because I really covered the collective unconscious and its archetypes and the, this whole schematic of Jung fully in episode 72. So if you if you missed that or you want to refresh or go back to that, but we, that was covered in, in very specifically back in episode 72. Now, what I want to address is Hegel's role in preparing the intellectual soil, so to speak, for what Freud and Jung would later develop. Hegel addresses individual psychology in the third section of his encyclopedia, the section called The Subjective Spirit. Here, Hegel identifies three levels of the subjective mind, the immediate or implicit, which he calls soul, the spirit in nature. The second is the mediated or explicit, which is consciousness itself. And the third is the mind defining itself, examining itself, looking inward, which he called actually called psychology. He claims that the soul is the awakening of consciousness, consciousness setting itself up as reason. He sees this as a development a step forward. As you can see, the soul to which Hegel refers corresponds directly to the collective unconscious of Carl Jung. Regarding the soul, Hegel states, quote, The soul is no separate entity. Wherever there is nature, the soul is its universal immaterialism, its simple ideal life, end quote. And Hegel puts it this way, quote, Nature in its own self realizes its untruth and sets itself aside. It means that mind presupposes itself as a universality which is one. At such a stage it is not yet mind but soul, end quote. And this, finally, quote, It is in the soul that mind finds the material on which its character is wrought, and the soul remains the pervading, identical ideality of it all. The soul is only the sleep of the mind, end quote. So there you have it. That's a perfect description of the collective unconscious. And that's why I believe Jung said that if psychology as a discipline was around in Hegel's day, Hegel probably would have been a psychologist rather than a great philosopher. The soul, or the collective unconscious, is the truth of nature, the reality of nature. And as such, it serves as a midway between nature and our consciousness. This is what Hegel is saying. That the unconscious, the soul, if you will, is real. It gives birth to consciousness, as we discussed in episode 71, under memory. And it's not only the memory of our own lives, but it's the memory of our ancestors. These memories become archetypes, which I mentioned was covered in episode 72. So, as Hegel says, the truth emerges out of nature. When nature realizes its own untruth, that it has no real existence without mind, and likewise, Sengel says, mind is not separate from matter, but emerges from this unconscious state to one of consciousness in matter. It's one process, the historical evolution of spirit within nature, as we've discussed so often in the podcast. Now, for more on Hegel and the unconscious, I refer you to two works. The book, quote, The Unconscious Abyss, Hegel's Anticipation of Psychoanalysis, end quote, by John Mills published in 2002, and the paper Hegel's Account of the Unconscious and Why It Matters by Richard Eldritch, published in 2014. Now, regarding this historical evolution, my psychology advisor in college did not realize that this process was going on. That is why he thought 
the existence of the unconscious mind requires a third mind to decide what is conscious and what is not. He could not comprehend the emergence of consciousness itself from the unconscious. Now, you know, a plant grows out of the ground. It, it does not require a third plant to decide which is part of the plant is above ground and which is below the ground. The seed, which is underground, eventually emerges, grows, springs forth from the seed, breaks through the ground, and you know, sees the light of day. And in the same way, consciousness emerges into the light of day from the darkness of the unconscious. Now, thankfully, psychology has moved past the B.F. Skinner behaviorism of the 1970s. But I should point out, in fairness, many of Skinner's contributions do remain, as they should, in teaching and in therapy itself, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. But while the extreme behaviorism of Skinner is no longer the paradigm in psychology, the modern materialist conception still remains as the fundamental belief system of the world today. And this is what I'm trying to argue against in this podcast. So, to summarize, the unconscious mind undoubtedly exists. It is the creative director of our dreams each night. It flashes us intuitive insights. It shapes our consciousness towards perceiving specific archetypal images around us. And yes, it is even the source of our neuroses. So, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you once again for listening. As always, I will be posting references on the podcast's Facebook page in a few days. And be sure to like and follow that page, at Cunning of Geist on Facebook, because I post there now usually every day, and I respond to all comments. We often have great discussions there. And I do refer to other traditions and other philosophies, other psychologies that reinforce and, and concur with the subject of the current episode. So please check that out and, and like it. And also, if you enjoy and find meaning in these episodes, please tell your like-minded friends about it. Help spread the word. And be sure to share links to the podcast episodes and my posts on your own social media accounts when, if you think it's worthy. I'm also on Twitter, at Cunning of Geist, and I'm also now on LinkedIn, Gregory Novak. So you can follow me there as well. So that's it for now. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.